Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Welcome back, constant listeners, to yet another episode of The Long Box of Darkness. This is episode 15, and since we're gearing up for Halloween, I've decided to focus on the sad part of 2018 um, in this Halloween, which is all the comic book um, luminaries that we've lost uh, this year. But it won't only be sad. I'll be focusing on their accomplishments and on one in particular, and the great contributions he made to the field that we so adore and love, especially to the horror side of this particular uh, comic book field. And that is the man himself, Steve Ditko. Now, as you might know, listeners, a lot of people have sadly left us this year um, in the comic books community, uh, among them, uh, obviously, Steve Ditko, and most recently Marie Severin, and even Carlos Esquera. Um, Harlan Ellison died. Oh, that was a blow. That was a real shock to my system. He's probably one of my top three favorite writers, short story writers, uh, right after Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson. Um, so, yeah, it's been a tough year for me personally when it comes to losing my idols especially uh, Ditko and Carlos Esquera in the comics book field. Um, Marie Severin, obviously, uh, one of the greats as well. Uh, but I never read a lot of her stuff, though. Um, I mostly um, read her Doctor Strange um, uh, art that she did. And, of course, I read a host of comics where she was the colorist, but I never realized she was actually the colorist. I always knew her as John Severin's sister. But... Um, Obviously, she was one of the legends of the comic book field, and um, I'm sad to see her go as well. But she lived a wonderful life, won lots of awards, and uh, definitely made the comic book industry that much brighter. But in terms of uh, Steve Ditko, though, uh, the man is obviously one of the greats who put Marvel Comics on the map in the 1960s, and uh, his art is so singular and eclectic and instantly recognizable um, even among modern day comic book readers. If you see a Ditko panel and you, you've seen Ditko before, you definitely know this is the same guy. Um, he wasn't a chameleon at all. He definitely kept to his signature type of um, characters and forms and, um, and particular brand of horror. But uh, he could do a variety of stories. He did superheroes. He did thrillers, crime comics, suspense. He did science fiction tales, fantasy, everything. His stories ran the gamut of imaginative fiction. And of course, uh, his horror stuff is particularly poignant. And that 
is what we're going to be focusing on today. All right, so I just want to let the listeners know there is a Halloween episode coming out tomorrow, in fact. So on Halloween, there will be a Long Box of Darkness show dedicated entirely to what I've been reading and watching and uh, what I've been up to in the October verse of 2018. But that's a tale for tomorrow. Right now, we'll be looking specifically at Ditko's work that he did for Jim Warren's creepy magazine in the late 60s and early 70s. Now, Steve Ditko is probably most famous for creating Spider-Man and Doctor Strange with Stan Lee for Marvel Comics in the early 60s. But, you know, in February of 66, it turned out that Ditko and Stanley were going to part ways on the Spider-Man and Doctor Strange titles. And in fact, he wouldn't work for Marvel again until much later. So Ditko then turned in his last Spider-Man story in 1966, and and that was it. Uh, but it wasn't unexpected, of course. Um, there had been trouble brewing for a while. Ditko and Stanley were morally and philosophically quite different people. So writing the book together just seemed untenable to probably mostly to Ditko, but also to Stanley, who must have also been frustrated because Ditko wanted to assert more control over the direction of the book, not just the art. Uh, rightfully so, though. Um, it was his co-creation. He didn't want to see it uh, go in a direction that he didn't agree with morally and artistically. So uh, that was it. His res- resignation was tendered. He quit Marvel Comics. And then after that, he started working for uh, Charlton, who had he, he had been working for since the 1950s, in fact, but um, he started submitting more and more pieces to them. And, uh, of course, he was a big name in the industry at the time, so he was snatched up by a couple of other publishers too, uh, most notably um, the Warren magazines. Since he had done horror comics in the 1950s and the early 60s, um, every now and then, uh, people knew about his predilection for creepy tales and eerie stories. And so he was drafted by, oddly enough, the Creepy Magazine and the Eerie Magazine, which he wrote many stories for. And um, this collection that I'm uh, pilfering, I should say, uh, the stories from, is the uh, Creepy Presents Steve Ditko hardcover that was uh, released a couple of years ago. Um, specifically in August of 2013 um, uh, Dark Horse Comics started reprinting these wonderful little hardcover collections they did a Richard Corbin collection they've done um, the Steve Ditko one obviously they did a Bernie Wrightson and then they also did an Alex Toth collection which I could definitely recommend to anybody who hasn't picked them up yet they're all beautiful sturdy little hardcovers containing the best of these artists' stories. And this Ditko one is definitely one of my favorites. I guess my my ultimate favorite would be the Richard Corbin one because it's got, it's nice and thick. It's got a lot of material, lots of art, lots of stories in color and black and white. This Ditko one, though, is uh, completely uh, from black and white uh, magazines, um, specifically Creepy and Eerie, even though they call it Creepy Presents. But I'm only going to be focusing on the creepy side of things. Uh, There's just too many stories in here 
to do everything on to to discuss so i've picked uh, six stories that i really really like and that's from the creepy magazines that he did and um you know the rest of the tales are pretty good too there's quite a bit of fantasy in here as well uh with strong horror elements so um, this is not just for the horror fan this is also for people who like dark fantasy there's a bit of sword and sorcery here uh, probably way before Roy Thomas picked up Conan for the Marvel comics in the early 70s this was Ditko's forte he would you know um, often have a barbarian hero fighting a sorcerer or some you know supernatural monster called up by said sorcerer and then prevailing and walking off with the proverbial damsel he had just rescued so Ditko was a fan of more than just the superhero genre. He he had his fingers in every single um, speculative pie in terms of fiction. So I'm just going to read some of the titles in this story. Um, you have a foreword in this uh, Creepy Presents hardcover by Mark Evanier, who's also famous for his Kirby um, research. And um, it's a great foreword. It, it gives you the complete history of Ditko working for Creepy, which I'm going to get into later in the podcast when I discuss uh, Steve Ditko, um, the man, the history, uh, how he developed as an artist, his um, comics that he did from the 1950s onwards till his death um, in, in 2018 of this year, of course. But um, I, the, the titles are very uh, evocative of horror, uh, obviously, uh, fittingly enough. Uh, the first one, is the spirit of the thing and then collector's edition beast man blood of the werewolf second chance where sorcery lives thane city of doom room with a view shrieking man black magic deep ruby fly demon sword isle of the beast warrior of death <laughs> so some great stories in there I, I honestly couldn't find a bad one among the bunch um, most of them were written by archie goodwin the great horror comics writer, probably my favorite and objectively speaking, the best horror short story comic book writer of the 60s and 70s. I would say my favorite right after Steve Gerber and Alan Moore. And uh, he wrote brilliant tales for Ditko to illustrate, but you can definitely see Ditko um, also uh pushing the stories forward with his own brand of storytelling, the visual side of things coming through strongly here. So Archie himself admits in the foreword, which Mark Evanier, he quotes Archie Goodman saying that Archie said Ditko was just, he put stuff into the stories that you wouldn't believe that enhanced the overall effect so much that readers and would write in and, and say, wow, Archie, you, you told Ditko to draw this fantastic sequence of panels and Archie would have to admit and reply to the reader saying that, no, that was all Ditko. So the man was definitely a genius in the, in the truest sense of the word, a comic book genius. But we know all that. As a comic book uh, fan, listeners, as comic book fans, you probably know Steve Ditko is one of the great of the greats. So this is me celebrating his life and art, not really his death, so it shouldn't be too sad of a show, especially not when the fear is going to come through after I talk about these tales. But let's get into it. All right. The first story I picked to talk about is The Spirit of the Thing, which is, in fact, the very first tale that opens up this collection. All right. Here's the brief synopsis. Professor Jerome 
a dying hypnotist, manages to trick a student called Rogers to undergo a hypnotic procedure whereby his spirit is set loose from his body to drift in a horrific shadow realm. Jerome occupies the student's younger body with his own soul and so escapes death for a time. Rogers, meaning to have his revenge, escapes the shadow realm and animates Professor Jerome's dead body, sending it from the graveyard to his former lodgings, where he proceeds to batter Professor Jerome to the point of death. Due to the pain, Jerome leaves Roger's mutilated body at the very last minute, allowing him to reclaim it, just in time for Rogers to die in his original form from injuries sustained, which he had given himself, actually. Jerome is doomed to wander the shadow realms forever, menaced by the shadow demons. All right, so this is a a wonderful story. Not my favorite of the bunch, but definitely a great opener to this collection. And the very first story that Ditko did for um, Creepy. All right, so there's lots of blacks in this story, lots of shadows. you got the, the mood of horror being... Uh, generated here in a fantastical way and uh, the close-ups of the characters faces are incredibly uh, suspenseful when you look at it like in the the, the very uh, second page of the story you've got this image of Rogers lying there with his face all battered and deformed and punched up and it's it's truly horrific seeing that you've got, also got some great lettering here um, which I think is done by Ditko himself and um, as as some characters uh, walk up a stairway, there's this scream, yeah, which uh, sort of becomes the stairway almost. It's like a ladder. The scream, the actual uh, typography, is a ladder leading up to these stairs. And um, you've got this scream of no pouring out of a window, looking like a laser beam. <laughs> it's amazing, really. And later on in the tale, we see um, Ditko drawing this zombie-like form being animated um, by Jerome as he struggles out of the ground, looking very, very Solomon Grundy-ish. Um, but it's it's great. The limbs are dangling all over the place. He looks like a puppet being manipulated by some invisible uh, horror god as he shambles towards uh, the house trying to get his revenge um, on Professor Jerome, who's now inhabiting his body, the body of Rogers. And as he pummels uh, Jerome to the point of death, there's this great scene of uh, scenes of them struggling and, and um, you know, fighting, holding on for dear life in terms of, of uh, Jer- Professor Jerome was in Rogers's body. And then at the end, um, the denouement, where they finally switch back their bodies or, or switch bodies again, the body of Rogers just liquefies into the, the, the floorboards <laughs> of the house where he lived. It's sick, but it's amazing. And then you've got this final image of uh, Professor Jerome floating through the shadow realm, menaced by these shadow demons, and him screaming Aye! into the blackness. And then Uncle Creepy ends with saying, See what happened to Jerome? He was a guy who'd rather switch than fight. Now he's just a shadow of his former self. Oh well, on to my next tingling issue. 
that's the spirit. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to be using our Limbo Squiggle rating system. That's right. Um, why did I pick this weird rating system? Well, basically, uh, when Ditko drew these interdimensional planes of existence, especially Limbo, which you find a lot of in Doctor Strange, where he draws places like the Nightmare Realm or uh, Dormammu's Dimension or dream sequences of any kind, really, in, in his other stories for Charlton or so forth, uh, Ditko would use these squiggles, these lines of, of force or energy or bridges or matter being twisted in these strange shapes. Um, and I call them limbo squiggles. <laughs> Sometimes Doctor Strange walks on them. Sometimes char characters just float through a whorl in one of these squiggles. You never know what's going to happen in a Ditko imaginary realm. So limbo squiggles, that's right. And for this story, I would have to give it three out of five Ditko limbo squiggles. It was great. I loved it. Um, fairly predictable uh, story-wise, but the art shines um, a little bit too heavy on the blacks at some, in some places, but it really sets the mood. So three out of five seems reasonable. All right, on to the second tale that I've picked, which is probably my favorite of the entire collection. And this is called, this story is called Collector's Edition. All right, here's the synopsis. Danforth, a collector of occult books, stops by a bookstore run by Merch, a corpulent and despised man who likes to lord over his patrons with promises of rare acquisitions. Merch teases Danforth that he might be able to acquire the rarest of the rare, a tome called Dark Visions, written by the sorcerer, the Marquis Lamode, hundreds of years ago. Merch leaves to meet with Ramsey, his importer, but Danforth seeks to beat him to the punch by getting to Ramsey first and buying the book off of him directly, thereby bypassing the hateful Merch. As Danforth stops by his mansion to pick up the cash, we learn that his fortune stems from having married into a rich family and that his wife despises him for squandering her inheritance on silly occult trash. Danforth goes to find Ramsey, but is shocked to see the police on the scene investigating Ramsey's murder. Danforth, now suspicious, hurries to Murch's bookshop and finds the disgusting bookseller hoarding Lamode's dark visions, unwilling to part with it. Danforth strangles him in a rage and makes off with the book. Upon returning home, his wife threatens him, but he ignores her and heads to his private study filled with antique books and weapons, where he is shocked to find that the pages of the Marquis's book shows the future. As he turns the final page, he sees an illustration depicting his own future in which his wife stands behind him brandishing an antique axe ready to take his life. Whack! The story ends with blood pooling on the Marquila Modes forbidden book. And so ends the life of Danforth. So a wonderful, wonderful story full of twists and turns. Um, as I was reading it for the first time years back, I never saw it coming. I never saw the ending working out quite this way. Um, obviously, this is because of Archie Goodwin's writing, but also because of Ditko's immaculate depiction of events that leads up to the surprising O. Henry-esque ending. 
And the art in this story is better than the spirit of the thing, the previous tale we discussed. Um, it's actually got more detail, although every single story of Ditko's uh, got a lot of detail. But this story features the famous series of Ditko panels where he inserts the eyes of his protagonist um, between various panels in a rectangular style panel between um, other, uh, other horizontal panels. And these eyes serve to sort of heighten the tension of the story because every time you see the eyes, they look more distraught, more fraught with fear than the previous time you you lay you know laid eyes on them. So um, it the eyes first appears on the first page, um, where you see uh, the, the face around them sweating and and looking incredibly terrified. And then on the second page again, um, you you can't believe it, but Ditko makes the eyes look even more terrified, and and so it proceeds onwards and onwards. And you've got this great image of an evil sorcerer the Marquis Lamode, who wrote this book, this tome, Dark Visions. And there's a great panel on page 3 of the story, which is page 23 in the collection, where you see the sorcerer with this evil leer on his face writing this tome, and all these demons and images of death and ghosts and monsters um, swirling around him. Uh, he's got this feather pen that he's brandishing with a flourish as he writes this book ridiculously evil expression that uh, that um, Ditko draws. And in fact, this Marquis Lamode is very similar to, let's say, an evil Doctor Strange from an alternate reality or something like that. You can definitely see him, you know, translating the Doctor Strange images, images that he was so well known for to this page, but making it his own and, and different, you know, than the, what he did for Marvel at the time. More horrific, more terrifying. And... Um, Yes, uh, Merch himself is drawn in a particularly gruesome way. You can really see the evil, the the despicable type of personality oozing from him in every single drawing that that uh, Ditko does of him. This this loathing that Danforth feels for Merch can really be echoed by us, the reader, uh, the readers, just because of the immaculate art that Ditko displays here. And then eventually the eyes. Um, you know, they uh, come forth again on the bottom of the pages as the story progresses and the eyes just look despairing and um, and looks almost like uh, they're, they're suffering from some kind of drug-induced stupor and eventually the eyes just close and, and that's where Murch's uh, or Danforth's life ends at the very end with blood uh, pooling all over his desk and this axe handle protruding from his head in the final panel amazing really an amazing story my favorite of the bunch my favorite ditko story of all time probably uh, horror wise all right so that's collector's edition now it would be remiss of me if i didn't give this according to the rating system at least five out of five limbo squiggles because it is my favorite ditko story of all time and um, I, I just have to give it that score. I'm sure readers uh, and listeners, if you um, take a look at this story, you would agree with me. It's brilliantly done. Um, great twist ending. Wonderful art leading up to it, pushing us along uh, for the ride. You, it's a page turner for sure, even though it's only a few pages in length. All right, then we get to the next story, which is entitled Beast Man. 
Um, the synopsis goes like this. Ames, a hulking boxer at a carnival that offers $100 for any man who can go a few rounds with him, finds himself plagued by nightmares in which he turns into a beast man and attacks helpless ladies. It turns out that Walsh, the carnival barker and Ames's manager, had convinced him to undergo an illegal heart transplant by a quack doctor working as a vet taking care of the carnival animals. Whoa. Ames had been suffering from heart ailments that had turned out to be merely psychosomatic, induced by his hatred of boxing. But Walsh didn't want to lose him, so he convinced Ames to have the operation. Completely fake, the doc and Walsh had allowed Ames to believe that they had transplanted a dead carnival gorilla's heart into him, which in turn would allow him to overcome his psychosomatic symptoms and allow his, uh, him to fight like a beast in the ring. The plan worked better than they could have believed since Ames proceeded to turn into a literal beast man psychosomatically, killing both the Doc and Walsh in a fit of rage. All right, this story is also a very good one. This is the first story in the collection where we see Ditko drawing a grotesque transformation. So you've got Ames uh, transforming into not really a gorilla-like creature at all, even though he believes himself to have a gorilla heart, but into some kind of werewolf look-like. Um, think the beast from the X-Men, but with a face uh, and a head that's half bald, and, and way more devoid of intelligence. Um, he's definitely hulking and muscular as he is in real life. The way Ditko draws him is reminiscent of, let's say, uh, the thing. Uh, you know, the way the thing looks when he's human, as drawn by Jack Kirby. But, you know, this guy's much hairier. His hirsute looks like a bear. And um, he, in fact, echoes that image when he turns into the Beast Man. So he's, he's got this despairing expression on his face, um, obviously suffering from the fact that he hates boxing and the symptoms induced by his uh, loathing of the sport. But he's a great boxer. He always wins and believes himself um, to be the best, even though he doesn't like it. He wants to turn his back on his life and then uh, becomes an animal in the process because of these the machinations of these two uh, evil characters in the book these two uh, antagonists who convince him that he has in fact received the heart of a gorilla. And there's some a great panel showing his transformation where he uh, literally uh, transmogrifies his flesh and shapes it into the form of this hairy being who then kills both the Doc and Walsh amazing and you have uh, uncle creepy at the very end saying hmm looks like a case of may the beast man win ha 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 yeah so one of uncle creepy's puns <laughs> that he so likes at the end there so this tale i would also have to give three out of five limbo squiggles not a bad story definitely surprised that it was psychosomatic i thought it was literally the heart but it turned out to be all in his mind it wasn't the heart of the gorilla that that affected the transformation but ames's mind itself so mind over matter in this tale proving that the mind is stronger than the body um 
So yeah, I, I liked it. I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, of course, not even uh, amongst my top 10 favorite Ditko, Ditko tales, but it's so good uh, that, you know, most of Ditko's stuff, stuff is so brilliant that it definitely ranks up there with some of the best of the best, uh, just not my personal favorite. All right, so get, going along to our next story, which is entitled Blood of the Werewolf. All right, here's the synopsis. Drunkard Carl Holt barges into the offices of psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Nigel, loudly proclaiming that he's a werewolf and needs help right away. He tells Dr. Niles the story of how he was kidnapped in the park, taken to a lab by a crazed doctor, who revealed to the captive Carl that he was about to undergo a blood transfusion in order to cure the doctor's son of a terrible disease, this disease being lycanthropy. Unfortunately, this meant that Carl would receive the blood of the son in return, saddling him with the curse. After the transfusion, he woke up in the park and discovered that he had all the symptoms of a werewolf, hairy palms, heightened senses, and a lust for killing. The next full moon, he went on a murder spree and confessed to Dr. Niles that now he bursts and confessed to Dr. Niles as he bursts into the doctor's offices at random, hoping that he would find the doctor who had cursed him. At the sight of the full moon, though, through the window, Carl transforms and attacks Dr. Niles, only to be shot dead with silver bullets. As the police remove his corpse, Dr. Niles and his father, the doctor who kidnapped Carl in the first place, stands gazing down at the departing ambulance with evil grins stamped on their faces. <laughs> All right. Uh, I like this story because it gives us Ditko's rendition of a werewolf. That's right. Now, Ditko doesn't come close to the master Bernie Wrightson, who's my personal favorite artist when drawing werewolves. I just I just dig his werewolves so much. Um, okay. Uh, Wrightson these days neck and neck uh, with um, Eduardo Risso. If you've read his brilliant um, Moonshine that he does with um, Brian Azzarello, you'll see what I mean. Uh, Risso draws a brilliant kick-ass werewolf, but I love Bernie Wrightson's werewolf so much. Ditko, though, does a passable werewolf. I have to say this for him. The man could basically draw anything and put his particular artistic spin on any horror trope or concept and, and make it look new and exciting and uh, scary, which is basically what you need, right? In the horror comic, you, you need the artist to make things look terrifying. And Ditko's Werewolf does that. It terrifies the reader, I think. So Blood of the Werewolf um, is a tale of a good guy losing. Uh, he doesn't get what, what uh, he deserves. Um, again, Ditko's Werewolf looks very much like the beast from the X-Men, but the expression of evil and ravenous hunger on the face of this werewolf just um, disturbs me. You know, so it's definitely the body of the beast of the X-Men, but the werewolf form itself, the face, the facial features makes for the horror. And like I said, uh, the two uh, antagonists in the story end up um, winning and getting what they want, which is um, the, the, the doctor ridding his son of the curse and them getting rid of the only person who could testify against their insidious plan and expose them. Um, so 
of course, most stories in Creepy and Eerie ended up like this. And in fact, the EC tales from way back when, too, there was hardly ever any um, moral, you know, tale which would uh, sometimes mean that, okay, I must say that in most EC tales, the criminals got what was coming to them. But more often than not, you would have tales where the good guy sort of uh, loses and the, the criminals end up uh, in a bed of roses, <laughs> which sometimes happens in O. Henry stories too. All right, so um, for this story, Blood of the Werewolf, um, I'm only going to go for 2.5, two and a half uh, Limbo Squiggles out of five. Um, it is a good story. Um, I love Ditko's depiction of a werewolf, but a little bit too straightforward for me. Um, it didn't have any kills. I, I mean, it, it had some kills, but you didn't really see the kills happening. It was in a comic book like Creepy, which was aimed towards adults. It wasn't hampered by the comic book code. You would expect to see some blood, some like, like you saw in the earlier stories of the Collector's Edition and also um, the spirit of the thing. Uh, here you don't see any blood, even though there's a werewolf with, with long claws and sharp fangs attacking people. Um, I thought I think Ditko could have made it a little bit more uh, bloody and grotesque, but he didn't. Still, that's just personal preference. It is still a good tale, and um, as I said, the first time I saw Ditko draw a werewolf, which I loved, so wonderful. All right, so uh, the the score might seem a little bit low, but um, you know the rest of the stories set the bar so high that it's it's hard to give every single story. A great score, even though I do love the ones that I score a little bit less than three uh, Limbo Squiggles. Don't hate me for that, dear listeners. All right, so let's get on to the next tale. Second Chance. And the synopsis goes as follows. Edward Nugent, recently deceased, finds himself drifting in a horrific limbo, full of Limbo Squiggles, of course, filled with all manner of nightmares until he found himself face to face with the Lord of the Pit himself. He reminds the dread demon of a bargain they had struck ages ago, where Edward would be returned to life to pick up where he left off, in return for consigning his soul to hell. The Lord of Limbo returns Edward to his body, but Edward is appalled to find that he has awakened in his own grave, six feet under. The devil had tricked him, luckily, or so it seemed at the time, Two grave robbers are exhuming Edward's body, only to nearly die of fright as Edward leaps up from his coffin. Reacting with violent shock, the grave robbers beat Edward to death before they themselves succumb to madness. The police find them among the headstones, one a gibbering lunatic whose hair has turned white, and one dead from an eventual heart attack. All right, this is probably my second favorite tale in the Creepy Collection, highlighting Ditko's work, uh, for the simple fact that uh, this deals with Limbo and Ditko's uh, rendition of otherworldly planes. And it also has the um, protagonists becoming insane. And, and this gives Ditko the, the, the opportunity to draw these lunatic expressions which he's so good at. Now, I want to describe the second page of this story, which is page 46 in this creepy collection. And this is a 
full splash page of um, the story and the the name of the tale second chance at at the very top of the page and then you you see this splash panel of um nugent uh tumbling through this nightmare world filled with spider webs and and pillars of writhing human flesh with faces popping out sporadically every now and then on these uh, pillar-like structures you've got this blob-like creature with this one gigantic eye peering at Nugent as he falls past these horrific images. This reminds me a lot about uh, of Clive Barker's Hellraiser stuff a little. The films and, and even the comics where you've got these grotesque mounds of flesh in this hell uh, that that uh, is malevolent and tries to grab you as you tumble past it. So a wonderful splash panel of terrifying images. And then the very next page, page 47, the very first panel on page 47, features probably one of the most disturbing images I've ever seen, Ditko Draw. Because, listeners, as you might know, I I hate eyeball horror. Eye horror of all kinds. If you think about some of the Italian giallo films, you've got frequent um, uh, deaths where someone's eye gets slashed you they get slashed across the eyeball or and then this 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 eyeball splits into two i i can't stand that i just hate eye horror <laughs> this optical kind of horror so you've got this image of edward edward nugent um crawling or or falling from the sclera or or from the iris i should say of this dripping eyeball which is oozing this gelatinous liquid probably vitreous humor and he he upside down he dangles from this eyeball which which sort of spits him out so he's spat out by this eyeball and then captured by these creatures one of them also sporting this massive eyeball on this deformed quasimodo like body and then he's taken to the lord of the pit um beelzebub as he styles himself so this is the actual beelzebub demon from um, from biblical mythology and in, or or de- I don't know actually from biblical mythology from from de- demonic lore, and then he's presented by in, to to uh, the Lord of the Pit Beelzebub by these eyeball creatures who drag him around and he lies in the steaming puddle of liquid eye stuff, uh, tears even liquid tears bubbling and burning. Ugh. So um, Ditko does a wonderful job here of evoking not only terror through his art, but also um, disgust. And then there's another panel later on where Ditko draws an eye opening in darkness. You just see this eye with this, it it looks very 3D-ish. This pupil of this eye is sort of like almost struggling to pop out of the sclera, of the, of the, the white of the eye. It, it's it's really it looks like a, it looks like a seashell almost stuck in in this white moldy substance. Whoa! Ditko did an amazing job there. And then there's another part where the Lord of the Pit um, banishes uh, Nugent back to the land of the living, and he um, reels through the sequence of nightmare panels filled with webs and squiggly lines and stuff that Ditko is known for. And um, yeah, he careens on a headlong flight through these screens of horror. 
until he finds him back in his grave and and he's eventually discovered by the grave robbers and then or not the grave robbers the body snatchers who then beat him to death when they're so surprised to see this man waking up in his grave and then uncle creepy ends the story by saying a silence falls over the two policemen and the only sound in the cemetery is the wind which has become colder and perhaps faint above the wind so distant it might be from another world a cry like the sound of a soul in torment so wonderful tale all right i'll have to give this one 4.5 out of 5 limbo squiggles because it's my second favorite of the collection wonderfully um, grotesque and weirdish tale of horror and this brings us to the final tale that I've decided to spotlight in this collection, entitled The Sands That Change. All right, here's the synopsis. Horror comic artist Tom Newman and his bride are vacationing in the desert in what they call Indian country. They are warned by the local Native Americans that the desert carries a curse, but Tom ignores this. Around the campfire one night, he decides to design a new monster on his drawing pad for an upcoming horror mag. Tom is horrified when the desert seemingly brings the monster to life. Hunted, Tom and his bride hide behind a stone monolith that he drew earlier on. Tom attempts to draw more things on the pad to hamper the monster, but he can't seem to erase the monster itself since all his drawings were done in ink. His pen eventually runs dry and the only thing that he and his bride can think of is to crumple the paper. The monster and the monolith become warped and deformed. This allows Tom and his wife to climb to the top of the monolith while Tom drives his motorcycle into the thing, setting it on fire in the process. He decides to destroy the drawing as well and tosses the crumpled paper into the fire, only to discover that he forgot that his wife was still stuck on top of the monolith. The monolith itself bursts into flame with Tom's bride dying in agony on top of the burning monolith. All right, this story is a different kind of horror. Um, it's not so much fearful as um, sad and, and uh, you know, disturbing at the end when Tom seemingly causes the death of his wife. She dies at Tom's hands as he throws this crumpled paper into the fire caused by his exploding motorcycle after he, after he destroyed the thing that he had unwittingly created. So a story of tragedy as a comic book artist's, uh, artist causes the death of his wife. So this tale, um, also not one of my favorites, but um, it features again masterful art by Ditko. I love the fact that he here draws a tale of an artist that sort of becomes a god who can bring things into being, bring things into existence and, and to life through his drawings, which is, I'm sure, a thing every artist sort of dreams of or imagines, that his drawings, even as a kid, uh, drawings might become uh, alive. Uh, basically, uh, this artist uh, becomes an, a god who cannot control his creations, and the creation eventually ends up taking away the thing he loved most most in life, his wife. So a sad tale, but definitely a tale of horror. And um, yeah, I would have to give this story, uh, again, 2.5 out of 5 
limbo squiggles. Yeah, so two and a half limbo squiggles out of five. All right, so that's it for our uh, Ditko Creepy Presents uh, segment of the show. Um, stay tuned because we've got a, another segment coming up later on where I highlight Ditko's life and talk about his um, influence on the medium of comics. So um, expect that soon. But right now, I've got a surprise for you, a long-time listeners. Well, listeners, it's been a while, but I'm happy to report that a longtime staple of the show is back. She's recently freed up some time from her busy schedule to allow the long box of darkness to enjoy her riveting and electrifying wit once again. So without further fanfare, I'm proud to welcome our intrepid little intern, Erin, back to the show. Hi, Erin. How are you? You know this is basically kidnapping, right? Kidnapping? That's a bit strong, isn't it? I'm not sure I'd quite go that far. Oh, I would. Well, luckily you've probably got Stockholm Syndrome by now, right? So you probably won't report it. Ha, we'll see about that. <laughs> Anyhow, how's things going with you? Well, other than being kept against my will and being tied up to a chair in front of a mic, I'm doing fine. <laughs> no, I mean, how's things going horror-wise? You mean podcasting with you doesn't qualify as horrific enough? Ouch, Erin, that's really hurtful. There's no need for that. Well, it's not like I have a choice, is it? Alright, here goes. I've been reading zero com- horror comics, but I've been watching tons of horror films and shows. Really? Well, don't keep us in suspense. What did you watch? I recently finished Black Mirror Season 4, Channel Zero Season 1, Preacher Season 3, and watched the movie Attack the Block, A Quiet Place, and Hereditary. Oh, that sounds pretty cool, but um, why no horror comics though? I've been lending you lots of stuff, so it's not as if you have an excuse for you know, not having any material to read. Yeah, I'm being annoyed it. If I read them, I would have to speak about them on the podcast. I'm sure you agree that's something we both try to avoid. <laughs> speak for yourself. I've been literally begging you for more talk time here. Send me free, and we will talk. All right. So long, sucker. <laughs> Man, listeners, I can't believe I fell for that. And what's worse is she left without reading the review we got. Damn. Just kidding. I'm back. Make you worry, though. Ha, yeah. Hilarious, Aaron. So you want me to read the review or not? If you don't mind. Alright. This is an iTunes review from JCK3. And he gave the show five stars. He said... Just listened to my first episode of this podcast and really enjoyed it. The host presents a comic of horror genre and gives a nice review and synopsis. Then we get a wonderful segment of feedback read by Intern Aaron. 
She needs a spin-off. She's great. The history of horror in comics is covered and finally recommendations. Great show. Thanks. Well, I guess that means you've got a fan there, Erin. Any chance you might be up for that spin-off? The chances of me doing a spin-off is about as much as Jamie Lee Curtis French kissing Michael Myers in the new Halloween movie. So I guess <laughs> that's a no then. Hell yeah, that's a no. Well, okay. Well, thanks for your time, Erin. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I wish I could say it was a pleasure. <laughs> well, listeners, that's it for our Erin segment. Hope you enjoyed it. Next up, though, is our special horror comic profile segment. So don't go away now. Welcome to Herman's Horror Comic Profile segment. This week we'll be looking at the man discussed on this week's show with great fervor, love, and detail. None other than Steve Ditko himself. Marvel at the history of one of the greatest artists and creators ever produced by the comic book medium. And if, for some reason, you failed to be impressed with the man's credentials, check yourself into an insane asylum, double-quick, because there's clearly something wrong with you. <laughs> Alright, listeners, I'm back, and I'm going to drop some Ditko knowledge on you. For those of you who don't already know every, sing- every little aspect about this man, he's always fascinated me because he's such a recluse. Um, he doesn't like the spotlight and also because he's an advocate of Ayn Rand's objectivism which I don't particularly agree with but I respect the man and his principles and the fact that he stood by his guns and stood up to Stan Lee who was a powerhouse in the 60s at the time he's definitely his own man Steve Ditko and I appreciate that I respect him mightily because of that so here's a bit of history for you folks about Steve Right, Steve Ditko was probably one of the most iconic uh, American comic book artists of all time. Along with Stan and Jack, Jack Kirby that is, he was a pillar of the Marvel Comics um, creator community. Um, And he sort of uh, enhanced and expanded the silver age of comic books. Right after DC reinvigorated their superheroes with the Flash and Green Lantern and so forth in 1958, Uh, Marvel hit it big and I don't think any other comic book company could say to so perfectly define the 60s and that's all because of Ditko. He embodied the sensibilities of the time, Uh, he was versatile and of course The Amazing Spider-Man in 1962 co-created with Stan Lee uh, made him famous, a household name among comic book fans and of course his highly imaginative dreamscapes in Doctor Strange uh, firmly cemented that reputation. So obviously he also worked for other companies at the same time, even while working on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, which must have taken up lots of his time. Um, Eventually, he did a lot of thriller stories, horror stories uh, for Charlton and other uh, companies at the time. But after he quit Spider-Man in 1966, 
he started really pouring all of his creative energies into Charlton, who gave him uh, leeway to create uh, any character he wanted. So he created the question in 1967, Mr. A in uh, Wallywood's Wits End um, collection in 1967, magazine I should say, Hawk and Dove for DC in 1968, The Creeper, oof, one of my favorite characters, he created that character <laughs> in 1968. I wish people could do more with The Creeper, I really love him. I could even do horror with him, not just this laughing funny man routine that he's always got. And then of course, Shade the Changing Man in 1977. So he's got a lot of, uh, you know, creations for DC that he um, added to the company's uh, universe. Um, probably Blue Beetle would be the most um, noticeable one. Uh, but Blue Beetle did uh, exist in a, in a different form before Ditko, you know, reimagined him. So his original creations definitely being the question. Uh, from Charlton that went over to DC later on and Hawk and Dove directly for DC and the Creeper and then Shade. He also created a fantasy ca character called Slayer, um, whom I quite enjoyed. You can read all about uh, Ditko's wonderful DC work in the Steve Ditko Omnibus, uh, Omnibus Volume 1 and Omnibus Volume 2 that's uh, put out by DC. It contains some great stories and uh, good remastered colors and, and art. It looks crisp. And the details fine, so I recommend that. Um, and of course, uh, like I mentioned, he was a very reclusive guy, uh, but he did add a lot of personal touch to his characters. He brought a lot of emotion into the panels when he drew, and he was actually probably the first comic book artist I can think of that would that applied philosophy in his stories, particularly with characters like the Question and Mister A. Um, this. Uh, philosophy that I'm referring to here is, of course, Ayn Rand's, Ayn Rand's objectivism. Okay, so he was praised by a lot of artists and inspired lots of folks in the 1960s, uh, but not a lot of pictures of Ditko actually exists. Um, most of the pictures are from the late 50s or early 60s. Um, more often than not, him sitting in his studio relaxing. I've actually only seen one like that. Um, I haven't seen more than just one Ditko pic. And um, to give a bit of more personal history on the man himself, he was born uh, Stephen John Ditko Jr. in 1927 in Jones, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, of a, he was the son of the first generation of Americans of Czechoslovakian descent. And he was inspired by Hal Foster, the artist of Prince Valiant, and also by Bob Kane and Bill Finger's Batman, and of course, Will Eisner's The Spirit. Lots of um, young aspiring artists growing up in that in those days were inspired by Eisner. And then um, he left high school and served in the in post-war Germany from uh, 1945 onwards. And then he drew comics while he was in the army for the army newspaper, apparently. But then eventually returned to civilian life and went to New York uh, and then enrolled in a cartoonist and illustrator school. Um, I think that was still... Uh, paid for by the U.S. government at the time, uh, by the Army. Um, the GI Bill, as it was known in, in 1950. And then um, he became the pupil of classic Batman artist Jerry Robinson. So he wa Jerry Robinson was his artistic mentor. And he trained Ditko for two years. And it was also during this time that he became 
friends with artist Eric Stanton, who was sort of a fetish artist who drew these racy pictures and and lots of nudes. And this kind of influenced Ditko as well, the art style, if not the subject matter and the content. And um, it was, in fact, during the 60s, while Ditko was making a splash at Marvel, that he still um, shared a studio with Eric Stanton in Manhattan. And they often, you know, helped and critiqued each other's work and, and um, not not directly, you know, penciled each other's stuff, but definitely offered some helpful, helpful advice to each other. So one of Ditko's stalwart friends, Eric Stanton. And then um, when Ditko was a young man working for Jerry Robinson, he first published stories for Stanley Morse's key publications. And uh, in fact, the first story for the key publications that he published was a tale called Daring Love. So this was <laughs> in the romance genre. And um, then he also published some fantasy artwork um, under the banner Strange Fantasy and Fantastic Fears. Then his work started to move more towards the suspense and thriller genres and also direct horror. He also did a couple of Western comics, Blazing Western being one of them in 1954. So at this point, Ditko um, was also working as an inker on Simon and Kirby's stuff. And this was at Crestwood Studios at the time. Um, he also inked Kirby's Captain 3D for Harvey Comics. And then he created some short stories uh, in the Kirby and Simon headed anthology style horror comic Black Magic. This was between 1953 and 1954. And uh, that was also under the Crestwoods Prize Comics imprint. So then he really threw himself into horror when he started working for Charlton. Um, in 1954, he did his first stories for them, and he worked for them up until 1986 when Charlton closed its doors, when they uh, went bankrupt and DC bought up most of their characters. So the, the stories and um, tales that he did for Charlton ranged from horror to science fiction to super, just plain supernatural tales, uh, stuff like The Thing, uh, sus uh, strange suspense stories, um, mysteries of unexplored worlds, un unusual tales, so many. Um, and I would advise any serious Ditko fans, if you want to drop some serious cash and get yourself a nice Ditko collection, you should definitely check out the, the collections that Fantagraphics has been putting out there. Um, they've got, you know, six Ditko volumes and all of them are beautifully designed with lots of these early 1950s Ditko uh, reprints. You've got stuff like, um, I think the first volume is called Strange Suspense Stories, the Steve Ditko Archives, volume one. And then you've got volume two, Unexplored Worlds. You've got volume three, Mysterious Traveler, and number four, I think it's called Impossible Tales, and then number, I know there's one called The Outer Limits, it might be number five or number six, and then there's one called Dripping with Fear, <laughs> but all of them are great. I own the first two, but uh, then I opted for, there was a sale on Comixology, and I bought the other four digitally. And that works, but I, I wished I had completed this nice hardcover Ditko collection. But the first two are great, uh, worthy addition to any horror fan shelf. So then, you know, Ditko 
um, had his Marvel period where he worked uh, in the 60s, so well, primarily on superhero stuff. But um, so I'm not going to go too much into his uh, Marvel period that um, I've done on another podcast uh, that I do with Grand Richter called Into the Weird. And um, safe to say that he was, he definitely made um, himself known as one of the greatest superior artists of all time with his work on Spider-Man, his creative pan- panel compositions and page layouts brilliant imagery and his singular style really uh, put him on the map so a lot of the success of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange could definitely be attributed to Dick Ditko in my mind at least because Stanley used the Marvel method he would dictate the stories to the artists and then the artists would go and draw them and they would uh, more often than not completely change them and then when the stories get back to Stan Lee Stanley who had so much on his plate at the time would just simply fill in the dialogue and offer some small um, bits of advice or uh, some editorial changes that need to be made. But he would um, leave most of the storytelling in the hands of the artists. He would just vaguely give them some outline of what he wanted them to do or where he wanted the story to go. So Ditko and Jack Kirby, who worked with Stanley um, under this method, they basically, if I can quantify it, I. I think, or if I should segment it, I would say 70% Kirby, 30% Stanley, and with Ditko stuff, I would probably say Spider-Man was possibly 40% Lee, 60% Ditko, but Doctor Strange, I would say almost 90%, at least later on, 90% Ditko and 10% Stanley. But that's just my personal opinion. I might be vilified for for this. Still, you know, Ditko um, made a splash in the 60s with his superior tales. But we're focusing here on horror. So after leaving Marvel in the 60s, um, he did some experimental graphical tales at Charlton. And um, he even, uh, you know, penciled Captain Adam, um, which was supposed to be a superior comic at the time, but it turned into this wonderful sci-fi romp um, and this Ditko really expanded the imagination of the the readers and also his own, I guess, with his uh, creative artistic flair that he exhibited throughout his career. And he did many, many short stories in the 60s, um, similar to the ones he did in the 50s, most of them for anthology magazines, for, for Charlton mostly, Ghostly Tales, Shadows from Beyond, Beyond the Grave, Creepy Things... Scary Tales, Monster Hunters, Ghost Manor, Ghostly Haunts, all of those um, Charlton horror comics featured some of Ditko's stories. And then he started working for Eerie and Creepy, uh, Jim Warren, in 1967. So that's what we discussed earlier in the show, and those were some of my favorite Ditko tales. I must admit, though, I haven't read um, a lot of the Ditko tales from the Charlton era, uh, just from what I've been able to pick up when I was a kid um, here and there and then on eBay within the last 10 or so years. But I'm nowhere near completing my run of the Charlton Horror stuff. I'm I'm not even close. I'm probably halfway through where I want to where I want to be, but it, it's taking a while and it's not particularly expensive. It's just hard to find the stuff you want and need. And whether they ship to Taiwan, that's a big deal for me. Anyway, so... 
basically he also did with Send Magazine, like I mentioned, and produced some adult-oriented content free from the code, which was still in effect on normal comic book publishers at the time. But the magazines that were put out was free from this, so he could really push the limits of his philosophical leanings and also of his moral tales. And then um, he also worked for Dell Comics, Tower Comics, and then eventually DC Comics, where he created a host of the characters, like I mentioned earlier. He even worked on Wallywood's Thunder Agents. Um, this was also at Tower Comics at the time. And then, you know, um, so he went into the 70s and he still did a couple of DC tales. Um, he, uh, he worked again with Archie Goodwin um, on stuff like The Destructor. Um, I think that only lasted for four issues or so. Um, it didn't last long. And then he also worked with Ernie Colon and Gabriel Levy on a series called Tiger Man. Um, and I think Ditko and Bernie Wrightson drew the final issue of uh, a series called Morlock 2001. And this was around 1974 or 1975. And this was um, all done for a company called Seaboard Periodicals, which was um, a new imprint by formal Marvel owner and publisher Martin Goodman. He wanted to get back into the comic business after um, being bought out from Marvel, after leaving Marvel, and he wanted a, some his son to have a type of uh, uh, outlet for his business um, lean, uh, desires and so forth. So he created this company, Seaboard Periodicals, and it attracted a lot of, lot of big names. Archie Goodwin... Ditko, obviously, Bernie Wrightson, Jerry Conway, but it didn't work out, unfortunately. So eventually, after uh, Seaboard Periodicals went bust, uh, Ditko had to return again to um, making content for DC. And in fact, the Sword and Sorcery series I mentioned earlier, Stalker, sorry, I said Slayer. I'm thinking of Skull the Slayer here, which is on my mind since I'm talking about that in, in, on the Into the Weird podcast soon. Um, Stalker, that was one of my favorite fantasy tales, which, like I mentioned, could be found in the DC Omnibus Volume 1. And um, I think um, he also had a hand in creating uh, the Man-Bat, along with Neil Adams and Frank Robbins, although I should confirm this. Um, he might have only d done the art on the first issue. He might have not had a creator credit on the Man-Bat, but it seems like some something Ditko would be you know, good at creating. I mean, he created a Spider-Man. He can just as well create a man-bat. Plus, he was always a fan of Batman <laughs> way back when. Anyway, then he started working for DC's horror line, and he did some uh, stories for House of Mystery, Secrets of the Haunted House. He did a couple of detective comics tales, um, and he then revived the classic DC superhero Starman in Adventure Comics and did a couple of tales there, and those ones were written by Paul Levitz the Legion scribe at the time. And then a uh, very controversial run um, Steve Ditko had on the Legion of Superheroes, uh, possibly because of his connection with Paul Levitz and they worked well together. But um, I remember that run as not one of my favorites. So it's just uh, his style just didn't gel with the Legion. I think it was definitely something he just did for the money, Ditko at this point in time. I, I don't want to say that he... Uh, wasn't always um, 
filled to the brim with artistic integrity, but um, those tales lack um, imagination, dynamism, uh, fluidity in terms of the art. So the Dr. Mayavale story in Legion of Superiors really uh, it's cringe-worthy, but not because the art's bad. It's just um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't have any um, inspired uh, moments. But then he returned to Marvel Comics in 1979. This is important because um, um, at the time Jack Kirby had just returned to Marvel as well after his DC career went bust, and um, then uh, Jack Kirby had uh, created a hero for Marvel called Machine Man. Um, whose title ran from 1979 to 1981, and Ditko came aboard in 1979 and penciled uh, lots of issues on Machine Man. I think probably nine or so issues. Yeah, I think he took over from Jack uh, after issue 10, and then the, the series lasted for a 19-issue run. And then you know he penciled the final nine issues. And I think Marf Wolfman was the writer on that series at the time. And then he did uh, lots of other work in the 80s. But much of the 80s and 90s um, Marvel work that he did was for toy lines and book series and spot illustrations. He even did some movies and TV series. Um, he made you know, some stories with Bill Mantlo uh, featuring the Micronauts. And he did a couple of issues of ROM. And um, after that, he... Or went into animation a bit, uh, at least stories based on animated stuff. And he also uh, drew a miniseries for a TV series called Phantom 24T. He did uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the adaptation of that TV series. And then he did an Iron Man story, and that turned out to be his final work for Marvel um, in 1998, I think it was. A 12-page story featuring Iron Man. So then Ditko worked, um, you know, largely for himself. He was still always freelance. He produced lots of um, comics in the 90s. He kept working even though he was old at this time, at this point in time. He was in his late 60s. Um, he did some work for Valiant Comics. And um, then his work started to, not decline, but he, he started to scale down a little bit because um, you know you just can't keep keep producing at the same pace but he still kept working so unfortunately you know I didn't hear a lot from Ditko in the 2000s and of course just people sought interviews with him there's this famous um, uh, British TV show where you see Jonathan Ross and uh, Neil Gaiman trying to uh, hunt down Ditko and, and get an interview with him but they couldn't quite make it but they did get to meet him and get some free stuff from him. You can find that on YouTube. Neil Gaiman, In Search of Steve, Steve Ditko, I think, is the, the name of that documentary by Jonathan Ross. And great, great documentary. All, all of you should check that out. So um, all in all, Ditko won eight Alley Awards. This was between 1962 and 1965, and that was mostly for Spider-Man. And in the UK... His fans awarded him the Eagle Award in 1985, which is one of the highest um, UK comic book honors. And then um, in 1987, he got an Inkpot Award. And that's the international award um, for comic book artists. And he was inducted into the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1990 and then into the Will Eisner Hall of Fame in 1994. 
And then the final award he received was in 2015, the Joe Sinnott Hall of Fame Award, lauding Ditko's inking skills. And sadly, earlier this year, on June 29th, Steve Ditko was found dead in his apartment. It's presumed that he passed away two days earlier. So we lost one of the greatest comic book creators, artists of all time this year. But I hope I've done a good job in trying to honor uh, Ditko's accomplishments and what he gave us and how he influenced this medium that we all so love, especially the horror field. Um, I dare say that all in all, if you take all the content of his 50s work and 60s and even some of his 70s stuff and you put it all together, then his horror stuff probably at least in content, eclipsed what he did in terms of the superhero field. Not counting science fiction and fantasy here, though, but all in all, I'd say predominantly Ditko did a lot of horror. So rest in peace, Steve. Thanks for everything you gave us, man. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for our Steve Ditko tribute profile segment. Next up, I've got some recommendations. So keep listening. So what have I been reading lately? What could I possibly recommend to you listeners that would sate your insane lust for sequential horror. Well, I do have three series that I recently discovered and that I've read the first two issues of. The first of this one, this being Bone Parish. That's right, Bone Parish, yet another horror comic by Cullen Bunn, the writer, and with art by Jonathan, oh, Jonas Scharf, colored by Alex Guimaraes, And this is from Boom Studios. It's a tale of a family who've wormed their way into the drug business by producing this supernatural drug called Ash, which they cull from the bodies of the deceased. They raid tombs, they body snatch, they um, exhume graves and, you know, make off with the corpses and then grind them up and create this type of supernatural drug similar to cocaine but um, gray in color you you apparently um, I wouldn't know <laughs> trust me on this listeners you take it just the way you would cocaine you sniff it and then it gives you this high where you actually see the dead come to life so let's say for instance you imbibe the drug um, made from a dead rock star, you'd have the rock star in your room with you. His ghost would be there, play music to you, or, or if you have the the ash of a dead supermodel, she would, let's say, keep you company for the night after you, you've taken this drug. So obviously it's a very popular thing. Everybody's buying it, people are getting addicted to it, but the family called the Winters family, they're trying to make a living for themselves with this ash and... Um, Every one of the kids, the, the, the mom is the matriarch, uh, and it, it turns out she's got a, a husband called, you know, Andre, Miss Winters and Andre, and then 
you've got the kids. Each of them have their own distinct personalities. You've got the the business-minded uh, one. You've got the violent one. You've got the the smart girl scientist uh, type of uh, character that's uh, creating the ash. And they're in trouble because it turns out that their product uh, turns lethal sometimes. When someone takes too much of it, the ghosts that uh, come to keep them company the drug users, I should say, that the ghosts that come to keep these drug users company turn violent, rip them apart. And then they, they've also got the mob on their case because the mob wants to buy out their business. It's a fascinating story. Uh, great art by Jonathan Scharf. And, of course, Colin Bunn can do no wrong. So I would definitely recommend you check out Bone Parish. I think four issues are out um, at the time of uh, me recording this. But I've only read the first two. I'm loving it. I've got the uh, issue three and four. I just have to get to them. So yeah, definitely uh, pick up Bone Parish. Then the second comic I wish to promote here that I really loved was Border Town. That's right. This is a comic featuring the amazing artistic skills of none other than Ramon Villalobos, one of my favorite comic book artists. He's got this great style, similar to Frank Quietly, uh, but, you know, not as puffy. <laughs> Sometimes Frank Quietly makes his characters look a bit puffy in the face for me, but Ramon doesn't do that. He's definitely in the Frank Quietly school, though. Um, great story. It's written by Eric M. Esquivel, who I'm not familiar with, but he's a great writer. And this is a tale of a young boy called Frank who moves to Mexico with his, um, or not to Mexico, I should say, to the to the uh, town on the border uh, of the uh, the U.S. and Mexico, uh, hence the name of the title, Border Town. And um, this is from Vertigo. This is one of uh, DC's Vertigo imprints new titles. They're reviving Vertigo. I'm very happy about that. And this is a great addition to the new Vertigo line. I'm sure people will fall in love with it. There's some amazing art in this story. So young Frank, he doesn't really want to move to this town called Devil's Fork, which is on the border um, between the U.S. and Mexico, on the, on the U.S.-Mexico border. And it, it seems that this region is haunted by El Chupacabra, who takes various forms, uh, mostly monstrous horrendous-looking vampiric Mexican forms, which uh, Chupacabra assumes to rip his victims apart. And Frank is trying to adjust to his new school. There are bullies there, but he's made some friends already, and he seems like a tough kid. He can handle himself. He beats up a bully in the very first half of the story. And he makes a gigantic friend who always wears a luchador mask with a Superman T-shirt called Quinte. And he meets some girls who are into him. Amy and Juliet, and then they have to deal with this problem of the chupacabra who snatching people uh, left and right and, and ripping them apart, eating them alive, seemingly. And it turns out that this appearance of the chupacabra is in fact related to an invasion from. Well, this is the spoilers here, I think, but this is this is where I think it's going, uh, an invasion from the Aztec or in Inca underworld called Mictlan. So yeah, that's where it's coming from. But there's this wonderful little shop featuring a, a, a witch woman, I think a, a one specializing, specializing in the art of brujeria, uh, 
um, Mexican sorcery, and they give uh, this shop's called La Botanica, but they give you a um, Ramon Villalobos draws a panel where you see the interior of the shop, and this shot is amazing. From just a quick glance, I could spot in this shop um, the Sandman Morpheus's uh, helmet carved from the the spine of a dead god <laughs> standing on a shelf. You've got a poster of John Constantine. Now this is in the background, so it's not very uh, detailed, but it looks like a poster where John Constantine is hugging Bram Stoker's, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's interpretation of Dracula and um, in this very sexual embrace. And then you've got Wonder Woman as a saint and you've got the Black Mercy flower that Mongol used to um, attack Superman in that famous Alan Moore tale um, for the man who, have, who has everything. <laughs> so you've got the Black Mercy, you've got Sandman's helm, you've got a Hand of Glory here, you've got a Wonder Woman saint statue, uh, this poster of John Constantine doing horrible things to Dracula. <laughs> so, and this woman apparently who runs the shop is called La Curandera. So wonderful um, image here by Villa Lobos. I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen further with this comic book. And the second issue is just as good as the first. So definitely give Border Town a look if you're into some seriously messed up um, horror. And then the final one I want to recommend is a no-brainer. A lot of my listeners have probably read it already. I only recently picked it up. Um, it's been on my call order for a while, but um, I only now got to it. And that is a series called Leviathan from Image Comics by Jonathan Lehman and Nick Patara. And this is definitely a series meant for you if you want to get your kaiju on. That's right. There's lots of kaijus in this series. It's a kaiju invasion caused by seemingly at first what you think could be kids playing around with a Ouija board. Or, or playing uh, some kind of similar game to evoke these creatures accidentally. But it turns to be more, out to be more complicated than that. Um, all I can say is there's, there's a lot of action in this series, a lot of carnage. Uh, think Cloverfield, but with more visuals on the creatures that are attacking these people and the city. So definitely give Leviathan a look. I've read the first two issues as well, and I, I can't wait for the third which is possibly out there by now. So that's it for my recommendation section and for this week's show. If you wish to leave any feedback or comments, please do so. You can send me an email at darklongbox at gmail.com or via Twitter. I'm on Twitter as at darklongbox. And you can also check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. I'd appreciate that. So... As we're gearing up towards Halloween, I just want to remind everybody, stay safe. Uh, don't walk down any lonely or dark or hidden alleys in Haddonfield, Illinois, or any of those crazy places. And um, stay safe, uh, dark listeners. And I'll be back again with a Halloween-themed uh, show soon. So thanks for listening, as always. Until we meet again when once again we delve into the long box of darkness. Bye-bye.